I'm Betsy Reed, and this is The Discomfort Practice, where I talk to creatives, activists, leaders, scientists, and a host of others about discomfort, about the role it's played in their lives, who they are and what they do in the world, and the value of discomfort in helping us move forward as a society. Discomfort is just the edge of your comfort zone, and on the other side are superpowers. So settle yourself in, and let's get uncomfortable. Welcome to The Discomfort Practice. I am currently sitting in a recording booth at the university I teach in because I am in a big time of transition, which is why it's been a while since I actually recorded an interview with a guest. So I've just put all of my things into storage here in Barcelona, and I'm embarking on a life of digital nomading very soon. So I'm not recording at home. You won't get my usual church bells in the background ever again. I've left left my home of six years, so here I am. But I'm really looking forward to my next guest because on quite a few occasions when I have asked past guests to recommend great guests, they've, they've told me about this person. So Leila Ajaralu is lots of things. And I'm going to go ahead and just read her biography because she's a pro, so she'll probably roll with this. But I love impressing my guests right off the bat with who they are, which is why I make you sit through your biog. <laughs> Some people put it on after they recorded with a guest, but I like to make this part of the process. So I'll just read the biog from her TED Talk, Paper Beats Plastic, How to Rethink Environmental Folklore, which reads like this. Leila Ajaralu breaks through our deeply entrenched environmental folklore in order to reveal the true impact of the products and materials we use every day. A designer and consultant, Leila encourages both companies and individuals to look at the full life cycle of the things they create and use in order to understand their net effect on the environment. At Eco Innovators, an ecologically minded Australian design studio, her team makes award-winning designs and projects that tap into a sense of play in order to educate. This is hilarious because this is 10 years old. I know, I know, but I like it. That's great. See, there you go. Because it's, it's like, at my point at the end of this is going to be, Leila's been... revival. Yeah, but she's been doing this for a long time, even though I'm looking at her and, and she seems pretty young still. So she started at the age of 14. But yeah. So they make animations about lots of things, but it was about being creative and playful to educate people and really get people to think about their sustainability practices, whether they were businesses or individuals. We're going to talk about where we've come from in the past 10 years, because I was giving a talk yesterday at a global events congress saying, look, 10 years ago, I was saying small incremental change, do your best, small individual change counts. And I'm not saying that anymore, because it's not enough, and it's not fast enough. So we'll get into how important design is and what you need to, to know and Layla's an expert on this and has been along in the journey of coming from that, like, let's make playful change. But she's always had an eye on how to really create systemic change by designing things differently in the first place. And so moving on since then and from then, she's an award-winning designer, sustainability provocateur, which is a great term, social scientist and entrepreneur who developed the disruptive design method and creates educational experiences, toolkits, and social enterprises that help design a sustainable, circular, and regenerative future. Regenerative is also a word that has come up more and more, a concept that's come up more and more in recent years, in recent months, as people realize 
We really need to become net positive. We really need to regenerate things if we want to survive on this planet. So she's a main stage TED speaker, not TEDx, actual TED, a LinkedIn change maker and was named UNEP or United Nations Environmental Program Champion of the Earth in 2016 for her work in advancing science and innovation for sustainability. She leads presentations around the world on activating positive social and environmental change through systems interventions. And she's the founder of the Unschool of Disruptive Design, which is how I first came across her. Disrupt Design, the CEO Project Farm and Swivel Skills, or Co-Project Farm. We'll talk about that. <laughs> An enterprise-level green skills development platform. So I was wading through Layla's various outputs. She's prolific. And hence, I came across the 10-year-old biog. And I watched the more recent stuff and interviews. And her website is an inspiration. And Layla, actually, your sustain- personal sustainability approach about how much you will fly, how much percentage of your time you put into pro bono speaking opportunities and things like that was an inspiration to me because any of the rest of us who do similar work and struggle with, all right, how do I justify flying to do my job? How do I make sure I give back enough while also running a sustainable, viable business that supports my life and helps me to continue to make change? I'm going to put that link in the show notes because it is actually a beautiful example of best practice. Oh, I'm glad because, yeah, it's definitely been a struggle over the years to figure out how to manage those yeah, factors. Yeah. So, and now we even have like a, a checklist because for, for organizations that hire us to come and do workshops or to do anything, and if I show up and there's like disposable plastic water bottles, I literally have Good. a meltdown. I'm like, why would you hire me to talk about transformative change? And then you didn't even think about your catering? I know. <laughs> like, we have this free checklist now, which is like, here's the top 12 things you must do to not be. This comes at such a good time. Because like I said, I was speaking at this thing called IBTM World in Barcelona yesterday, which is like 10,000 delegates from around the world who run events and meetings and, and just saying, look, if you, if you think you're running a sustainable event and you show up with plastic water bottles, I don't know what you think you're doing. (laughs) So thank you for influencing through your role as a speaker and an influencer, because it just, it's so basic and it just gets missed out so much. So all that to say, welcome. I'm delighted to have you here. We're already starting our discussion, but thank you for being here today. I know you're busy. I'm happy to be here with you. So we're going to talk today about how to think clearly about complex matters, because Mm -hmm. we live in a complex world, but I, I hope that people are really starting to understand it's never going to be simple. And the more we understand the complexity of issues like climate change, the unraveling of society because of growing social inequality, the, well, the crisis of trust that is, has been tracked, well-tracked. Nobody knows what to trust or who to trust. Nobody trusts government or business anymore. So how do each of us individually and then collectively begin to think more clearly about solutions to complex issues, because they're going to be complex solutions. We can't go with the simple, the simple lines anymore about, oh, you know, just recycle more. Having run a national recycling campaign and lots of stuff on waste, it really doesn't work. I don't want to over-dramatize it, but it's kind of important. Mm. So I always ask guests the first question, same first question, which is what's an uncomfortable moment that has shaped who you are what you do in the world and just how you show up in the world. Yeah, I would have a, a like a four hour podcast of just all of the, the, the answer to this, but I was reflecting on it and 
you know, one of the things that I think has been, was really influential to me early on when I was, I think about maybe 18 or so, um, you know, I'm Australian. I, I don't live in Australia anymore, but I, I love Australia. I grew up there, but Australia has a very, very tragic history of, of um, dealing with refugees that would arrive on our shores seeking asylum, usually legitimate refugees during the Iraq war were arriving and, and there was this quite inhumane practice of taking these humans who were seeking, legally seeking asylum under the UN Conventions of Human Rights and putting them in previous uh, military facilities in the middle of the desert in Australia and, um, and then later onto islands like Nauru and uh, treating these humans with very little dignity. And so at a young age, I was quite, what's the word? Horrid? Horrid? No, horrified. That's the word I was looking for. Horrified. Horrid. <laughs> They're horrid. I was horrified. <laughs> and so I did work with Amnesty International around refugee issues, and it was something that I was very passionate about, the human rights issues. And so I ended up um, pen palling with a young woman who, who was in, in one of the detention centers, and, and she was my age, um, and she had come from Iran. And we pen paled back and forth, I think about four or five times. And then unfortunately, her letters stopped and I, I don't know uh, what the future had for her, but at the time there was a lot of forced um, re returning to the original countries mm. uh, by the government. But in those letters, I learned some fascinating things about this woman that she was just like me. <laughs> she was a young woman who had aspirations. She was smart. She wanted to learn more. She wanted to grow herself into a person in the world. And that was exactly me. Mm. I was young and wanted to figure out how to be a good person in the world and, and learn things and apply that. And I had this really profound realization that she and I could have been in the reverse situation. And I mean, even just talking about it, I get goosebumps because it really transformed my understanding of what it meant to have privilege and, and freedoms that for every one of me, a young woman who can get educated, who was, who was raised in a pretty safe and secure country and has a certain passport and speaks a certain language and looks a certain way, I'm able to activate my agency in the world in, in profoundly different ways to, um, for every one of me, there might be a thousand or so, I don't know exactly the statistics of women who aren't able to exert those same basic human rights. And so it really changed my perspective of what using your voice when you have one means because if I was her, I would have wanted me to use my voice to speak for her. And it really kind of not to speak for her, but to speak for the plight that she was in. And that really transformed my understanding of what it, what it meant to have the privilege of freedom and education. And so I, it kind of changed how I, I saw myself in the world and, and helped to, I guess, um, push me through the uncomfortable and challenging times that would always happen because I am still a woman. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still pretty outspoken. And these are all things that don't go down well in many situations. So I always think about that um, moment and, and how, you know, we can each activate whatever agency we have in the world to help make the world work better for everybody, not just for some of us. Mm. So that, that, yeah. I love that. And I, I completely amen that because that's been... That's my experience as well. Growing up in a very homogenous place, Wyoming in the United States, and just knowing that I had privilege and it was my 
my obligation, but also my privilege to be able to use it for other people, to create change in the world, to create space for other people who don't have the same space to take up. But yeah, like you, I'm a woman, I'm outspoken. I walk in the room and people go, she's tall and wears lipstick and has short hair and I'm scared and whatever she says, I'm going to resist it. I, that's some interesting, interesting. That's why I make games. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I know. It's just like, and let the games begin. No, I think that play is like one of the, anything that is challenging and reward, like these mechanisms, they really cut across a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Play is like the first thing that we learn to do as, as emerging humans. And so I think I've seen like CEOs climb across boardroom tables to play games that I <laughs> yes. You know, so... I feel like it's like, I mean, I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I do try to do activations and all these other things as much as possible. But I mean, this is one of the early kind of mm, interventions where I was like, sustainability is presented as a very scary, overwhelming, the world is going to end, which triggers all of our negativity biases, which then triggers fear, which then triggers for a lot of people avoidance. And so I was like, how do I stop people from avoiding this important topic? Make it fun make it playful, make it enjoyable. How do I get people to not like be intimidated by me? Because apparently that's what a lot of people's resting experience of me is I'm like, let's make it fun, be playful. So it's one of the, the, the tools I think is, is really transformative that and, and, um, embodied passion. If you are passionate about something, it's contagious. If you embody it in your cells, then other people catch it. They can't help it. So. Oh, I love that. Because how? when did you figure that out? At what stage in your life, in your career, did it just kind of happen naturally? Because you were like, I'm a really nice person. I'm tired of walking in and having people be with <laughs> me. How do I, oh, oh, if I walk in and I start playing with people, because I flirt. I flirt with audiences. That's my tactic. And it's playful. And also like it helps to be foreign, right? I'm American whose career is British. So I just make people high five me and make them uncomfortable. I disarm them. And then we have a bit of banter and they're like, oh, she's all right. But when did you figure that out? Yeah, I think the thing is, is that with, with these topics, you know, it's very easy to discount or avoid or to bring a lot of pre-established stereotypes and baggage to the room. So people have still so many preconceived ideas about what sustainability or environmental anything is. They think of conservation. They think of tree hugging. They think of whale pres- preservation. They think of you know, locking nature up in parks and conserving and, and picking plastic up off the ground. They think of like hugging trees. They think of hippies. They think of all of these tropes and stereotypes, which is this legacy issue of the second wave environmental movement. Um, <clears throat> and they don't think about survival. They don't think about the fact that they are deeply interconnected with every living system that exists on this only known life-sustaining planet in the entire universe. <laughs> they don't think of wow and wonderment and beauty and possibility they don't think of innovation and opportunity. They don't think of those positive things. And so for me, early on, I had this realization that we had like a PR problem in the sustainability space. Yeah. And that was that most people were triggering in their communication, like um, giving things up, going back to the past, tropes that, that make people feel like this is not them. You know, it's very easy to disassociate from something that is not presented to you as an open opportunity for change and transformation. So very early on, I think I was like 21 or something, and I had been working at a research center in sustainable design, and and I was reading all these papers, and I was writing papers for the government, and I was doing all this research, and I was like, there's so much like academic literature on sustainability and design and all the ways we can do this, but like, where's it happening? So I kind of took myself on this three-month 
um, study tour, I would say. I was living in Australia and I took, I took three months off my, my job and I went to all of the research centers. So TU Delft and there was the Eco Design Center Wales and Polytechnic University in Milan and all of these places where I was reading the papers coming and I went, I went and I met with the professors and I was like, okay, show me, show me, show me, show me. Like, where are, like, show me all the designers who are doing this. And they're like, well, we don't really have it. It's like, we've been teaching this for 10 years, but we don't. And this, I, I appreciated their honesty, but the reality was that the, the, you can teach something in an academic context. It's all very philosophical or theoretical. And then people go in the real world, mm. which has not caught up or it's not ready for the change or the content that's being taught in universities is not fitting the commercial sector. And there is this disconnect, which then means you have all these people who are given these grand ideas and then they also have to pay for rent. And so this kind of issue kind of came out. And I remember sitting at this desk at TU Delft and just went, oh, we have a PR problem. <laughs> this is just a communication problem. Perhaps this is also just a design problem. And I was like, I'm going to tackle this as a design problem. So I then started creating content at the, in the early days of YouTube where, where it took concepts like life cycle thinking and you know, understanding the whole of life, <clears throat> environmental impacts of products and services, and made them playful and accessible. The first thing I did was this animation series called um, The Secret Life of Things, which was very much designed as an intervention into education as well. Because problem, the problem I also saw was that when people were being taught this stuff, they were being taught it in an extremely theoretical, analytical way mm. versus a kind of how does this fit with how I think way. So The Secret Life of Things was like a short animation where a cell phone has an existential crisis because it's been abandoned for a newer model. And he goes to see a past life regression therapist and he gets shown his whole life. It's very funny. I had to do the voiceovers because we didn't have any budget. <laughs> I remember that. I think it came out when I was at Forum for the Future and we were just enthralled. Yeah, it was, yeah. Great. It was just so funny, but it, made such yeah. a, it drove home such a point where people were like, oh my God, all that is in my cell phone. Yeah, that was cute. We won some, we won some awards for it. And also we ended up making a couple more because then it helped to get the curriculum in the higher education sector changed in Australia to include lifecycle content in the design and technology sector. So it was also like one of the first experiences I had where I was like, oh, so if I use creativity well and design, I can design interventions that have these bigger systems changes. And I was like, hmm, this is interesting. And at the same time, I also had responded to, uh, so I was working as I had started my own company by this stage, because after that whole experience, I was like, oh, I really got to jump into an uncomfortable zone here and figure out how to do this myself. I was 25 years old. I'd never had no idea how to run a business. And I quit a very well-paid university job to be like, I'm going to go make change in the world. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, what yeah. the? <laughs> how do you do your taxes? Yeah. I think a lot of entrepreneurs <laughs> listening to this right now are like, yep, yep, been there. My one advice is hire a bookkeeper day one. Yep, totally agree. Invest in a bookkeeper. It's such a waste of time having to figure out how to do that later. Yeah. Anyway, so then, um, so anyway, and then at the same time I'd responded to this this design challenge that the city of Melbourne had put out, um, which was they have these old um, newspaper pillars that are all along the main streets in the city of Melbourne. And of course, until 7-Eleven came along, people literally had a job selling newspapers to commuters <clears throat> to and from the train stations. Um, but then once you had these 24-hour convenience stores that sold newspapers, they become defunct and they became basically like urban plight. They got covered in graffiti and da 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 And so the city of Melbourne put out a design competition for people to reuse these spaces. And I, I won one. It was actually only me in one other guy. And I was the only one who actually did the project. 
I won the right to, I got the lease for free on one of these one meter wide cylindrical pillars that open up on the middle, in the middle of like one of the busiest streets in all of Melbourne. Right. (laughs) And I got this and I, and I then converted it into, it was just before Christmas and I made it into a micro shop that only sold locally produced environmentally responsible products. And it was the idea was I wanted to hijack people as they were going to the big department stores to buy things and expose them to really cool locally made things. And so I had this tiny shop and it would like open up and kind of like expand out into the street. And like for the first few months, it was like people were blind. Nobody stopped. (laughs) Like this thing was like a magical TARDIS that opened up and it was filled with beautiful, colorful things. And I'd be standing there and I'm like, why is anyone stopping? What's going on? And it was hilarious. Again, I took it the same way where you know, I need to find a point of intervention. So I actually just encroached on the street more and more. Like I just started like physically intervening in people and like kind of, it kind of ushered them in and we started to have change. And then we got a lot of um, media coverage about the project. And so you started having this little destination, like people would come to see it. Anyway, this project was really successful. So successful that the city of Melbourne used it as an example to create an entirely new micro entrepreneurial street trading practice. Ah. So if you go to the city of Melbourne today, every single one of those pillars is filled with a human, like I was a young person with a micro business. They pay a very small rent and they get to have exposure. You see people making jewelry. You see mine became a crepe stand. You can buy crepes from it. So I was like, huh, okay. Take number two of using creativity and intervention to create again, another policy change. And I was like, huh, this is interesting. There's something going on here. Like, how do I turn this into bigger impacts in the world? And so over time, you know, I um, ended up expanding my sphere of influence. Um, and to this point where, you know, I did get a main stage TED talk, which was also a competition. The year that I became a main stage TED speaker, they did a global talent search yeah. where they looked for people who filled the categories of the young, the wise, and the undiscovered. And I had to like submit a video. I then got shortlisted. I then had to pitch directly to Chris Anderson, who's the head of TED, which was a scary moment. Like this dude has seen like the best speakers in the world, blah, blah, blah. And then they, they picked like 14 people out of thousands who applied. And I was one of them. And then they gave me an 18 minute main stage TED talk. I was 30 years old. And I was like, petrifying, (laughs) like, petrifying. And the other thing is, is like at that stage, I think only one or two other Australians had ever done a main stage TED talk. It's in LA. You're literally standing there and like Cameron Diaz is standing next to you. <laughs> just, like, just like, Oh, hi Cameron. <laughs> is it Cameron? Is that okay? Can I say your first name? You know? Like I rode the elevator with Herbie Hancock and like almost oh my died. God. <laughs> You're just like, what is happening here? Have I made it? Or is this just a blip in my life? <laughs> Or is this just going to kill me because it's so stressful? So anyway, I did my main stage TED talk and that was great. I mean, at the time as well, like for sure, the kind of content that I was presenting was definitely not like how people were thinking about these issues. And that was why, of course, I was successful in, in being brought to the TED stage and being given that opportunity and, and being able to communicate to that broader audience. But since then, it's been interesting because <clears throat> I've continued to build a lot of projects, as you mentioned. So I actually started the unschool like a year after that. I did my PhD and um, in the process of doing my PhD in how to make change in the world through design. So I started doing like a classic PhD where I was like, mm, why do designers not care about sustainability? Like why does the design sector 
not take responsibility for the fact that everything they produce draws on nature, creates waste, and essentially feeds the entire economy. And that like most of our social and environmental problems are directly linked to, you know, design-led consumerism. So surely designers have like a conscience and they need to change that. And so I started interviewing them and speaking to all these leading designers and emerging designers. <clears throat> and every conversation I had kind of cycled back to a similar, you know, I mean, this was in the Australian context, but I think it's quite universal, a deflection of responsibility. Yeah. So like, oh, well, if we don't do it, someone else will, or my clients don't ask for it, or I don't have time, or everything's being produced in China and I don't know how it's being produced. And that's just the way it is now. And of course, like the designer doesn't necessarily have all the response, the agency to make better decisions, but they certainly have the ability to only present better options to their clients because designers are brought in to solve problems. And what you present to your client is what would have the best chance of, you know, anyway. So I started exploring all of this. And then in the process of doing that, I was like, had this like really weird reflection where I was like, oh, but hang on a second. So if everybody's just deflecting agency, what I flipped it and I was like, well, what would it take for you to be a designer that, that creates change? Mm. And so then I kind of, my supervisors were like, you need to make this about why you're, you're trying to make change. And like, what can you learn from that in order to like these projects that I was doing that were having these bigger impacts? Like what was like kind of deconstruct them. So my PhD became about making a practice of intentionally disrupting the system to make a better outcome. And so that was, I formed this kind of weird philosophy, systems-based disruption. And so then I was like, how the fuck did I go through 10 years of academic education and not get taught any of this stuff? Yes, exactly. I was like, I need to start my own school. (laughs) I was like, I was like, they were trying to lure me in to teach at the universities. And I was like, ah, guys, I feel like I would just be replicating the same problem. I'm going to go do this alone. So I moved to New York. I didn't know anyone there. I knew one person who I'd met. (laughs) And I was like, I need to, I need to hijack the the brand of the, one of the sexiest, coolest cities in the world. And so I I founded the, I started Disrupt Design and the Unschool at the same time. I'm going to tell you a hilarious story, actually. So I wanted to create the Unschool of Disruptive Design. I'm in New York, I'm registering it. And my lawyer calls me and he says, I'm sorry, they won't let me register the name, the Unschool of Disruptive Design, because it's too similar to the UN, Unschool, UN School. And I was like, oh, okay. And he was like, so you have to register like a different name. And I was like, okay, well, I'll just register the Disrupt Design. So it's funny because I kind of birthed a a design agency and a school at the same time. (laughs) And then years later, Right. No, the, the lawyer had said, you have to contact the UN to get permission. And I was like, that's never going to happen. I have no contact with the UN. And like what, like three years later, I got a call from the UN, from the head of the UN had, had, had nominated me or someone had nominated me to be champ- named champion of the earth. And I was like, oh, this is hilarious. And then from then on, all of my relationship with the UN, we have lots of projects and I've done a lot with them. Lots of people go to the UN school. It's <laughs> from the UN, they say, and they think that it's like a US school. Oh my God, that's awesome. So it was meant to be. I was like full circle, yeah. full circle. Yeah, it's hilarious. So talk about the unschool, because it's kind of obvious what it probably is, but uh, yeah. Yeah, so the unschool is like an ex- was founded as an experimental knowledge lab for adults. And it very much was about filling the knowledge gap that exists with people who have usually been on a career trajectory there, but all from all over the world. So we have over 15,000 students who have come from 
every corner of the planet. We are very active about equity. So we give a lot of, a lot of equity access places to people. So we have a lot of diverse engagement. And we used to run, before COVID, we ran very immersive seven-day fellowship programs um, that were, took 20 people. And we, we, the first one was in New York. And then every single one after that, was invited by an alumni who did the program. So it became like a, a kind of pay it forward model. So after New York, we went to Mexico City and then we went to Sao Paulo and then we went to um, Melbourne. We did go to Melbourne and then we went to, anyway, there's like a process. The last one was in Kuching in Malaysia, which was incredible. Oh, cool. um, and so our alumni then becomes the host and the producer of this experience, which is extremely immersive. And we have like 50% of locals and 50% of international. And we come together and have this like very amazing cross-cultural experience around activating social and environmental change using creativity. And we learn, like we teach the disruptive design method, which is an approach to understanding how to solve complex problems using um, a kind of iterative approach. So the, the DDM is based on it's a construction metaphor and it's a scaffolding to support thinking in systems and doing the work that requires you to overcome um, what we call the tip of the iceberg in systems thinking, um, which is essentially looking at the unobvious. So a lot of us rely on our biases to make decisions. And certainly within the design social change community, we are also riddled with our own biases and experiences, which don't necessarily enable us to be open to the more nuanced or invisible aspects of the, the system that we're dealing with. And a lot of the time, the points of intervention are the, 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 can sometimes be the most obvious or the least obvious. And if you want to be effective, meaning you want to use the least resources to make the most change, then you need to be able to understand or uncover where those intervention points are. And so the DDM, the disruptive design method, starts with a mining phase. And mining is like where you dive down, where you explore all the parts, you suspend the need to solve, you um, take a kind of curiosity mindset, and you explore the elements of the system. And then you move to the landscaping phase, which is the systems layer, which is about laying all the parts of the puzzle you found in the mining phase, and then taking that bird's eye view to be able to see the whole system, to then identify areas within that system that you would be able to intervene, but critically, which is within your sphere of influence and your agency. Because so many times early on in my career, when I was teaching people sustainable innovation and design, they would, ref what's the word? Um, they would fall on these two bookends of change in society. One is education and one is policy. Okay. Now these are very important transformative tools, but most people do not work in education and they do not work in policy development. And there's like, these are the bookends, but there's like 50 chapters in between here, yeah. right? Who's doing the doing in the middle. Yeah. Well, also the other thing is, is there's this thing with the designers that I interviewed, this deflection to the, to the agency, it, it's disempowering. So it's almost this like, social condition where you, you kind of reinforce the idea that you can't make change in the world if you're relying on these big pillars rather than all of the other options. And so this kind of giving people the agency to affect change and having those micro moments of success builds a practice of, of doing so um, in a more systemic way. And so in the landscaping phase, you identify, and then from that you build, right? So now you've laid the groundwork, you've identified your location, and you can build a solution that will hopefully have um, the transformative change that you want. And we use a lot of tools in order to help do that. Um, the, the whole disruptive design method teaches things like gamification and game theory. So understanding not just gamification, making fun games, but game theory, which is the theory of how the economy works mm -hmm. and combines them to look at motivating factors and how you can pull levers in you know, social conditions 
as well as language and influence and how we frame things and cognitive experiences and all of these different tools that help people who want to be creative change makers um, essentially develop their own practice. Mm. And I call the DDM a scaffolding because just like a building, once it's built, the exoskeleton is removed and then you have your own your own practice of making change. So I don't want the DDM to be something that people have to use exactly how I created it, but I always want people to have experienced this, this, this cycle of mining, landscaping and building and seeing this as an iterative practice. It's what I do. Every, every project that I do is, is follows the same method and it really helps me to make change in the world. So I, I started the school to be able to teach these practices. Um, and we have now since COVID, we have we had already an online school that was that was supporting our in-person programs, but um, you know we've we've uh, we have a lot. Of, we have like a hundred classes and stuff on, on on schools now, and we have tracks. People can get certified as a practitioner and educator, or they can do an unmasters. And so the unschool is like amazing. I love it, and the, the thousands of people who have come and all the people I've met has been so inspiring. But I've recently shifted, and next year will be like more. Um, so originally when I, I founded the unschool, I had a I, systems thinking was not being taught. You came yeah. from, from forum for the future, right? Yeah. You guys had just, had just started to shift to systems thinking as well at the same time. Yeah. And nobody knew what to do with it at the time. Like it was a real challenge. Yeah. And nobody knew how to make it accessible. Cause it's super complicated. Yeah. Like even Tamana Miller is who I love. Like I had to read her book five times to really try <laughs> and really get my head around. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't being explained in a way that people could get their teeth into like, and it takes agency away from people. Exactly what you've been saying. Right. Before we move on from unschool, can I just like comment and just say what has really struck me about your entire process and ethos. And that is quite forward thinking is that it's so inclusive from the fact that you include 50% locals wherever you are and then 50% of sort of fresh perspectives, but it gives such perspective to the design process because in any sector, there tends to be a really homogenous type of person in that sector. Mm -hmm. And then they miss the things that are outside of their biases and their perspectives, and then they can only create solutions based on what they know. So it just strikes me that you are bringing together such an ecosystem of perspectives and the ability to create real complex solutions to complex issues. So I just wanted to comment on that for people listening. Well, you get complex. Yeah. Nature is diversity, right? Yeah. I just use nature as a, as a rule. And nature also gives back more than it takes in most situations. Mm -hmm. So, you know, again, that's why we have an equity access. That's why, I mean, we still need to generate our projects and like we, I'm just about to launch a 30 days of systems thinking. It's taken me so long to make like this content takes so long to make. And it's not just because, you know, we want it to be sexy and cool and beautiful and accessible and all of these things, but I also want it to be effective, like the format in how it's delivered and all of these things. And I want it to speak to people in different ways. So making sure that different learning styles are access, can access so combinations of videos and reading things and downloadable worksheets. Mm -hmm. Everybody learns differently, mm -hmm. right? Like, so it's, it's important that we, we have accessibility, but at the same time, like it, I was actually just about to say one of the key things with the unschool was when I, when I started it, I had this like 10 year plan where by the end of 10 years, it would be obsolete mm. because it had made its intervention meaning that systems was being taught widely. Sustainability was no longer seen as like this fluffy feel good thing. So one of the origin stories of the unschool, other than my, my own learning journey um, through the academic sector was I had, was, I had a, a project where I taught kids sustainability and I had made these games and I'd gone into schools. It was part of like a funded 
um, project. And I was working with these kids, like let's say seven or eight year olds. And I was getting them to like do the life cycle of a chocolate chip cookie or, <laughs> and they all got it. And then they were like, oh, but then like, if we can reduce more carbon emissions then that's going to make the weather bad. And they like, just got it. Yeah. Right. Kids are so intuitive yeah. and they think in systems naturally. It's very intuitive. And I'm like leaving this classroom feeling really good about myself thinking, oh God, I've really like changed these kids' minds. And the teacher stopped me and he was like, oh my God. God, I've never thought about this. Oh before. my God, I know. And I was like, oh dear, oh dear. <laughs> I was like, this is not good. And then he says to me, another teacher says to me, oh my gosh, this is so interesting. You know how hard it is to learn about these environmental issues? Like, I don't even have the time to keep up with the workload of the current curriculum, let alone these new things that are being brought online. And I was like, if I was a teacher and I went to Google, and I needed to find content that was valuable or viable, where would I, what would I find? And it was shocking, yeah. right? Like I was like, oh no. And so that was one of the motivators. And the reason I have a school for adults is to fill that knowledge gap that existed in people at that time. And so my goal was like, hopefully in 10 years, this intervention would have helped to permeate and we would have trained enough people that they would be then taking these ideas forward. And so, you know, that was always my goal. Let's see. I mean, we found it in, in the September 2014. We just turned eight, right? Yeah, we just turned eight. I got two years left. That exact same model that I did, having all of these experiences with everyday people who, who have a, a deep sense of urgency and wanted to do stuff, but also needed a way to do it. Um, so now I'm doing that. So Swivel Skills, which is what we're launching next year, which is now for the corporate sector because sustainability, uh, climate action, the waste crisis, like these are all things that finally we have the biggest players in the world coming online to. So they're no longer going, oh, it's a fluffy feel good, nice to have thing that we get some poor department that's under-resourced yep. to do some bad research and greenwash the shit out of our products. <laughs> they're actually seeing that it's necessary for the viability of their company, not just because customers are demanding it, but because we are running out of the resources and we have supply chain issues and there's a climate crisis and we can't keep burying plastic in the ground, et cetera. You can't pay your shareholders if you can't make products because you've totally not taken care of the environment or your producers, period, fucking period, right? Right. And a lot of CEOs have kids who are going to school now and they're learning about these things and they come home and they give their parents shit for not doing the right thing for their future, right? So there's an amazing ecosystem of transformation that's happening right now. And, and I get the privilege, really are the privilege to work with some of these big companies um, and in helping them in their transformation. And obviously because my background is in design and innovation, I work a lot with engineering teams and design teams and stuff and help them learn how to do all these tools. So anyway, I've had so many conversations with people though, that I've left the conversation being very alarmed. Similarly to how I was alarmed by the teachers and these everyday people, I've been alarmed by these professionals, not because they do not have the best intentions and they're very motivated, but it's because they don't have the core knowledge because sustainability is like engineering. You need to hire the right people to ensure that your buildings don't fall down or your bridges don't collapse Yeah, because it's a complex technical skill set. Sustainability has a, has a 40 year history of science based investigation into how do we optimize the efficiency of production? How do we regenerate mine sites? How do we do agriculture where we're giving back more than we take? There's a, whole field of different sectors and approaches. And, and it, there's no one size fits all solution, but there are tools and thinking tools and doing tools that enable that. 
And there's new emerging things, whether it be the European legislations in ESG or corporate sustainability reporting that are forcing companies to really look at how they do this. But if they don't do it well again, then we're going to waste time. So, so the last year and a half since I started doing more work with big companies like Fortune 500 and having these amazing conversations where I would leave thinking like, oh, I'm excited they're doing something, but I'm a bit worried about the lack of uh, base training. And then also I started collaborating with, with LinkedIn um, a, a year and a bit ago, and, and they re- mo- released this amazing report called The Green Skills Gap. And I read it and I was like, oh, yes, we have a massive problem. And the universities are not going to be able to keep up with it because the way university curriculum changes, it is so slow. So even my thing is like, why are MBAs? MBAs, they're literally training the executives of companies do not teach technical-based sustainability. They do not teach what ESG is and how to assess carbon emissions using the greenhouse gas protocol so that you're actually in line with international regulations. They, They teach fluffy stuff that doesn't give them the practical tools to know how to hire the right people, build the teams, and do the work that needs to be done, like yesterday. So it's shocking, 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 right? So MBAs haven't changed for 30 years. I keep trying to get a business school gig, but I am at the point where I refuse to get a PhD because I was like, why would I go through the process of being hazed, basically, by people whose knowledge is decades (laughs) behind mine in order to get a qualification to teach in a system that is broken. No, thank you. But you should hire me anyway, because you need this knowledge. I got a PhD to change the MS at the beginning of my name. Uh, Yeah. Why don't you just officially, you could just legally change your name to doctor and then everybody just has to call you doctor. I also think a PhD stands for perseverance, hard work and determination. (laughs) And these are three things I learned in my PhD. I didn't, I did also go on a huge self-discovery of like, uh, agency and emergence because of what you discussed, the hazing and the belittling that the system likes you to go through. Mm. And after many whiskey filled teary sessions, I really built a whole kind of like inner, 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 um, strength around the system. And, and I think to be fair as well, perhaps one of the reasons I've been able to maneuver through so many different spaces with very powerful people who also don't necessarily like to have outsiders come in and, and talk to them partly was because of what I went through in my PhD, because it was very difficult to overcome some of those systemic and structural disempowering tools that are designed to weed you out yeah. anyway. Yeah. But, um, so this, so the swivel skills thing that I'm building now, it's like, it's funny because as I'm talking to you about it, I'm reflecting on it. And I, I, I kind of had this assumption about what, when I started it, that I was doing the same model of the unschool, but for the corporate world. Mm-hmm. And my goal, so the way I see it is when has the, when has the corporate world changed dramatically? Okay. Occupational health and safety, eighties, yep. right? What happened was people kept dying because of workplace incidents. And finally governments made it mandatory for companies to have safety measures that would then enable all of the staff to follow procedures that meant that they didn't get sucked into machinery and die, which is a very important Mm. like social change that we had. And it's global. And how did companies train everybody? They did basic training. Everybody did basic training from the factory floor to the, to the, the people working in the shops. And so my concept is basic training and sustainability, but that's not dumbed down. So it doesn't talk about the concepts like the Anthropocene and planetary boundaries, but it's delivered in a very easy to understand, um, format that 
takes people through the, not just the, any of the fluffy stuff, but like, this is, this is you understanding why and how your company now has a climate change um, plan and why you are also engaging with the circular economy. And so I kind of built this model of like online asynchronous learning experiences that are like animations and voiceovers and very simple click through with very simple, cute drag and drop learning experiences that I literally modeled off this idea of like, how do you train people to not um, do unsafe things in the workplace? How do you train people to think about sustainability as a critical part of the company's success? Because if they don't all level up to this as part of the DNA of the company, then any transformation that they seek to do will not have this kind of inward outward process. So, um, and eventually swivel skills will have um, more executive support as well that, that because, you know, sustainability is also a transformation process and organizational tra- change as well has been historically quite, um, uh, uh, let's say like you have the good and the bad. And if you use a more systemic approach, then you often have much better success than if you use a more kind of management rigid, like, you know, management consultant style. That's my opinion. Um, and my experience. So, so we're building this whole thing, which I think will hopefully have another 10 year, uh, a 10 year cycle and hopefully help to really level up some of the biggest players in the world. Let's see. Um, you know, that's my intervention point and I hope to be able to do that. And so it's, it's a really interesting thing to be at this point in time with sustainability now being in such high demand, but there really not being enough skills in the, in the world. I was going to say the other time companies really leveled up was the transition to digital, mm. right? Mm. Remember when like companies didn't have websites and that also boomed the graphic design yeah. industry, yeah. right? Graphic design, now user experience design. These are all industries that were born out of the shift from analog to digital, especially with communication, marketing, sales, et cetera. So I see these two, these two pivoting points, which is why we call it swivel skills, because we're just swiveling. Like people are taking their existing skill set and they're just, they're just turning it to have these new approaches to their existing jobs. And because the other thing is, is when people quit their jobs because their companies are not aligned with their values, this is a travesty because companies then lo- lose the natural instigators of change, yeah. right? And in this current crisis of, of, of skills that we have, I think that one of the biggest value propositions is what we call the value-aligned workplace. I actually believe that we're entering into what I would call the values-based economy, mm. where with COVID and the massive existential threats slash transformation that many people have gone through, it is changing the way pe- what people will put up in the workplace and what where what the value proposition between earning money and working for a company that doesn't align with their values and so that transformation is playing out right now where tech workers are quitting as well as being fired you've got this disconnect between the 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 executives and the managers and the owners and then the people who are, have the skills that are desperately required for the success and if they're not aligned meaning if companies are not fully uh, committing to addressing the existential threat of climate change, as well as biodiversity loss and climate, the the responsibility of these companies, then they're not going to survive this decade because they're not going to have the talent that's going to enable them to do that. So that's why I think that like, this is such an important intervention point and yeah, why I'm doing it. Go for it. Sorry. No, I love it. I I could feel the passion and I was writing it with you because I could not agree more. And the majority of my work these days, having struggled pre-pandemic to be like, I work in sustainability, yes, but it, it doesn't just, it's not just environmentalism, it's everything. 
But now the majority of my work that people want from me and that I do is about helping people to understand their purpose, their personal purpose, their professional purpose, and how did they align those things? How did they bring that to their work? And like with my students, my leadership students here at university, their final project is to present their personal purpose statement and show us how they're going to translate mm -hmm. that into their career and use it as a guiding compass. Because mm -hmm. it's obvious, and I keep telling them, you have something that CEOs 30 years older than you do not have. When you start your career with this really deep sense of purpose and a commitment to live your professional life in alignment with that, you are going to change the world. You are going to change workplaces. Remember that. And they can't quite picture it yet because they haven't really hit the world of work other than some internships mostly. But I know that I have leaders that I, I work with leaders to help them find their purpose. And yeah, this pandemic has been such a gift because everything was mashed together and people realized they kept their work life in a separate compartment than their personal life so much of the time. And they're having this crisis of being like, what do I do? Can I stay in this job? Can I stay in this profession? Can I stay in this system and actually be truly happy? Because now I understand it doesn't align with who I am. And it's, I love it. It's that I'm having the time of my life because it's like this opportunity has fallen in our laps. People like us who are like, we get this, that the only way forward is to be energetically efficient and just live in alignment with your values and then have the skills to do that. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of this stuff is very still, unfortunately, right now focused on, you know, Eurocentric Western models and, um, and you touched on earlier on about regeneration and regenerative. And I just want to just mention my thoughts on this because I've worked in sustainability for 20 years. I'm very passionate about the technical elements of sustainability. And I believe sustainability is a pathway to regeneration. But I also spent four years regenerating a farm, an abandoned space in Portugal that had been left for 20 years. And I learned how to be uh, an organic farmer. And I actively don't say regenerative farmer because even though I regenerated this space and had this really beautiful experience, I learned that regeneration is something very different to what we're talking about in the Western sense. And it is, it is rooted in indigenous and um, different knowledge and worldviews that the Eurocentric model of control and conquer is diametrically opposed to the concept of regeneration and even being on a farm where I was regenerating it to being at the, in service of me as a human, as opposed to allowing nature to um, take back what it, it was previously denied. So I have these very, um, what's the word, um, uh, complex and nuanced and lived experiences with this term, which I think is very powerful and very important, but not to be misused. And I, I started seeing it and I even felt that I used it. I was saying, I'm, be, I'm learning to be a regenerative farmer. And then as I went through the experience of, of doing so, and, 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 and anyone who's listening to this who's ever grown anything, you, and especially it's food that you then nourish your body with, it's like a, it, it transforms every cell in your body. Like you have a transformative experience in, in having to work with the land. And, and for sure, like I have a million of these moments with this, this project. Um, but the, the idea of being a regen regenerative, like I had some land that I let just do its thing. Mm -hmm. It's very hard for me to explain still, but I get worried because I see companies like I've worked with some massive companies who are saying we are regenerative. And I'm like, no, you're not <laughs> like, even if you're net zero in carbon, 
you still extract, process, and transform and do not take full ownership and responsibility for the entire life cycle of the products and services you create. You are not giving back to your workers. You are not getting, making their lives better. You know, there's so many sectors and factors. And it's not to say that regenerative is not an incredibly beautiful aspiration that we should be working towards. It is. It just, we need to be mindful of not inserting into it the same mindset that created the problem. It's appropriating a term that is actually about taking your place in an ecosystem rather than controlling it, isn't it? Because we've seen such a boom in permaculture. And if people listening aren't familiar. It's embodied interconnectedness. Well, and not thinking that we can impose this order as humans, as the apex of creation, which is just so Judeo-Christian centric as well. And realizing that this wisdom has existed for millennia and even and it was actively quashed and eradicated. Colonialized. Colonialism sought to eradicate indigenous worldviews and knowledge. I come from a country that has a very d- disgusting history of, 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 of stealing land from, you know, one of the oldest known civilizations on the planet and, and eradicating the historical beautiful history and culture and, and stories and narratives and connection and culture and like, you know, living in Europe, it's really interesting because when I go to a natural space in Europe, I have these images of the history of the thousands of years of conquering and control and, and transformation. And I always think one of the reasons perhaps in the Euro model, there isn't a deeper respect for indigenous culture is because indigenous culture was eradicated so long ago. Whereas if you come from a country like Canada or Australia or the United States, if you've connected with the existing indigenous communities in any way and understood and respected their approach to interacting with the world. It is fundamentally different to the way a Eurocentric uh, socialized person is. And this whole concept of decolonizing is partly about decolonizing our own minds. And if I circle back to design, design, right? If you look at any design book, it is 100% Eurocentric design. Mm -hmm. And any time that you have indigenous design, it is often co-opted rather than collaboratively or culturally um, respected, right? So we have this, we teach in design schools, extremely Eurocentric ideas of basically using design as a tool to serve industry and to serve, to serve the desire-led kind of consumerism, right? Whereas Indigenous design was all about working with nature to achieve the things you need in order to, to thrive, whether it be land fire management yeah. or whether it be how the architecture of streams to catch fish. But it was always about not taking more than, than, the, than the system could give you and to always find ways of giving back. Like, you know, the, 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 the embodied experience of regeneration in Indigenous worldviews is not even, it's not even discussed. It is because it is how it is transferred. And so for me, like having come and lived on the land and learned to farm, and I did use a myriad of different um, uh, approaches, whether it be syntropic farming, you know, keyhole gardens, hugel cultures, organic farming. I did uh, permaculture. It's great. I learned a lot of stuff. It was great. And, um, and I, I, I deeply respect, you know, that learning experience, but I also now get worried I get deeply worried when I speak to someone, I spoke to someone recently who, who was a management consultant who was told that he had to learn sustainability in order to help his clients. 
they were getting projects where he was doing work in sustainability with no technical skills. And he was at this conference and he said, oh, I think this idea of regeneration is really important. I'm going to take that back. And I was like, help. Oh my <laughs> like God. Oh my God. Oh my God. Yeah. The technical skill set of sustainability. Like yeah. if you just start selling this, it's beautiful dream, but without understanding it's, 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 it's nuance and it's, you know, ah, I worry, I worry, I worry, but I still believe that regeneration is the goal. And the way I talk about regeneration is, is learning the principles of nature, which a lot of other people do. It's about learning the principles of nature and learning how to work within the systems and understanding how, how to be a regenerative force on the planet, which is to fundamentally give back more than you take, like in a kind of, you know, simplified form, um, which, which I think is a good aspiration to have. But the pathway to that is at least understanding how to be sustainable within the resources that nature has. And then we need to be restorative because we haven't, can't even figure out how to restore the systems that we destroy before we can get to a state of regeneration, which I think is the ultimate goal and hopefully will be achieved in the great, um, the great uh, uh, experiment that is human life on earth. Oh, because we're seeing so much movement and targets toward net zero. And I'm just looking around being like, guys, um, we are so in debt to the earth right now and human survival depends on this. Net zero isn't going to cut it. And I stood on stage yesterday and said this. I was like, as an events industry, you have a net zero target. It's not enough. You need to be net positive because net zero just means we're not sinking deeper into debt, but we still have this gaping hole underneath us of. Yeah. But if you, if just to put it in, I agree with you, but to put it into perspective is like, you know, if I, if my bank account goes into deficit, I can't, in order to get to being positive, I need to first clear the debt. Yes, obviously. Right. And so there's this process. And I think what's important is your, yes, we need to constantly go beyond the obvious and push at the boundaries. And certainly those companies who have been doing this longer are already doing that, right? Like Patagonia's recent move to bring nature in as a stakeholder. Yeah. And so, so I agree. And the urgency is, I get it. Like there's eight years till 2030, you know, only, you know, 17% of companies who talk about the SDGs actually have done anything practical to apply them, you know, from a report from 2021 of the, you know, fortune 500 companies only, I think it's under 30% actually have net zero targets. Some, the rest of them don't have anything. Right. So the fact that I agree with you. And so for those companies that are already on this journey, then yes, we need them to be more advanced leaders to help drive that transformation. But for those that are not even starting the journey, they need to see that this is, they need to overcome the fear that they have because it, the, the, the disabling factor is fear, fear of the unknown, fear of the ridicule, fear of not, not being able to imagine an alternative future for themselves, right? So, you know, I always give this story about the horse and cart industry when the horse and cart industry had a conference um, a few years after the, the, the Model T Ford was released into the market, and they said, make no mistake, the horse and cart industry is going nowhere. It's not like they're going to be able to put a fuel station on every corner. <laughs> right? They couldn't imagine the future that was coming for yeah. them. And I think that there are a lot of companies are like that right now, where they're like still doing the emu, emu bias or emu syndrome where they're, they're actively avoiding the reality of the world around them, where it's not just that, that, the, that climate change and, and some of these other existential threats are requiring us to transform our entire economy and society. It's that also people are changing. Like generationally, we're shifting. 
and the desire and demand to have a culture and society that is more equitable and that is more respectful and is more aligned and is more harmonious is deep within many humans on the planet now. And so that is a resonance that is helping to, to, to make change. And it is also a contagious resonance, right? Like the more we can aspire to a future that we want to live in, the more we create that future. Because the only thing I know to be true about this universe is the future is undefined. Mm -hmm. Unless, you know, there are multiple parallel universes and the future's already happened, which I'm still not 100% sure on, although it could be that only the past has happened or it's all in a continuum. And then I get like worried that I have to live the same life over and over again. (laughs) And then I'm like, oh, maybe I could rewrite some of the wrongs of the past if I did that. (laughs) This got very philosophical. Yeah, this got very string theory-ish. Wow. I love you. I do too. too. And I'm with you. I'm like, is it? Maybe? Uh, Probably. I don't know. Who knows? But yeah, I agree. The future isn't written yet. It might have already happened, but we don't know it. But But we also have the power to change it because it is the product of our actions today. This is what I wanted to ask you to sort of end on as we slide toward the end of our time. So to people listening who might or might not have power in a corporate, power in a government, who might just be like, but what can I do? We've talked so much about agency and wanting to give people that agency. So to someone listening to this right now, how can they apply something you've been talking about, maybe design thinking or whatever, to operate differently in the world? It might not be that they go change policy or become an educator, because I've dabbled in both of those polls to try to enable people in the middle to create big change, but I know exactly what you're talking about. People are like, oh, just one thing I do isn't enough. No, probably not, but we still need you involved. So what can people do? What can people think? Okay. I have three things I need to say. First of all, let's define what agency is. Agency is the ability for an individual to see that they have some sort of influence or power in the world. It's, it's a self uh, um, perspective. And most education that the that people around the world has gone through de-agentizes your ability to see that you have influence and power. So that idea of one individual not having an impact in the world is part of the system that creates control and tries to fill your sense of agency with consumerism. So the most powerful thing any individual can do to start is to identify that they have influence and that the choices they make matter. And I'll say this as in relation to the economy, because how do you think products end up being the products that fill shelves is because of individual people taking choices to buy them and, and participate in particular economies. And every action is an accumulative outcome, which is then data that is then used to build the products and services of the, of the next generation, right? So every action you take matters. I know it's hard to understand that, but it does. Also in your community and your sphere of influence, the choices you make are contagious. So if you choose to shift your practices or behaviors, you can also encourage that kind of transformation. How many times have you helped a friend who has had a bad breakup or, you know, has, has had a job loss? You've helped them elevate themselves through your life experience and sharing. It's the same when we talk about sustainability and transformation and the economy. Okay. So every individual matters, no matter who you are, no matter what resources you have, no matter where you live on this planet, you have the ability to affect change through your actions. Micro actions lead to macro outcomes. Okay. And then the second thing is I don't teach design thinking. Uh, I teach design as a as a as um, a transformative tool for change, and I use the disruptive design method, which actively encourages a systems approach and actively encourages the idea that we are all able to intervene in the systems that we participate in. Um, and if we have the intent to actively disrupt the status quo, 
then we have the opportunity to create change. And, um, and that is something that connects to agency and it's different to using desire and um, using uh, the, I mean, human centered design as well. It's really about the Anthropocene and I don't want to continue to perpetuate the Anthropocene, but I also, and oh, sorry, I will say the Anthropocene is us, the proof that humans have impacted every element of the planet, but it also is proof that we can transform the world. We've proved that we can do it. It's just the direction we took it in was very um, uh, un, unconducive to life. And so now we need to realign that. And, you know, there are some people like Bruce Mao who talk about life-centric design and this transformation is happening, right? So if you are listening and you're interested in design, I strongly recommend you think about some of these broader, more expanded terms that are evolving. Design thinking, I think, had its place and it's not really a tool that I think is going to serve us into the future unless we transform what it means. Um, and that, that, is, that is that everybody is a designer in the sense that when you cook dinner or when you organize your day, you are designing your life, okay? You are using the tools of design to create um, a, something new out of the, the resources available to you. And humanity's been doing this for eons, right? Whether it be sharpening a stick or whether it be forming bronze or whether it be building spaceships that take us to the moon, we have been using the materials around us to create tools and resources that make it possible for humanity to flourish. We have done it with the ignorance to the systems around us. And that is the transformation that needs to happen now. So aside from identifying your own agency and sphere of influence and seeing that you have the potential to be a force for positive change, if you are sitting in a job where you hate your job or you can't see how your job would, would you love it and you can't see how you would change it, I think the first thing to do is to learn to think differently about the challenges that are in front of you. And, and that is where systems thinking really comes in because it challenges you to shift your perspective and to understand that every challenge is an opportunity in disguise. So the first thing I teach people is to love problems because we are taught to avoid problems. And when you avoid something, it becomes scary and overwhelming and it becomes um, easy to, to continue to disassociate from it. So the first thing to do is to find the problems that are immediate in your immediate environment, whether it be in your work role or in your, your company's practices and make changes, immediate changes. And those changes can be simple things like helping to get your waste policy change. And I understand that simple actions, um, I'm very much a, 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 a both ends of the spectrum, that we need transformative change, but that transformative change is affected by the, the, the actions of the, the masses, right? So the more individuals we have agitating for change down here, the more that feeds up to the transformation, right? And I know this from working with ecosystems because it takes only one small bug to mess up an entire system, right? If, it, if its population explodes and that one species takes hold, then it can really destroy that system. But if there's a balance, if there's lady beetles coming in and there's all of these different things coming in, that system evolves in a more um, effective way. Everybody's benefiting from it versus one part of the system controlling it. And right now, the dominant controlling part of this system is de-agentized individuals being overwhelmed and scared by the future, not loving the problems and not participating mm -hmm. in solving them. So that's how, what I would say. I know that was like three things, but I think you're, if you're listening to this, you're probably more than capable of doing. Yeah. Them yeah. The clues more. in the name of people choose to listen to the discomfort practice. They kind of know what they're in for. So yeah. I was going to ask you one final thing you want to leave listeners with, but I think that's it. Rewind everybody. Listen to the last three minutes, memorize <laughs> it. And that's your life. Now I wrote down love problems. Every challenge is an opportunity in disguise because 
How fun is that? Make it into an opportunity to be smart and play with it and come up with something that you can do. But I totally loved your point and just so well put, Layla. Thank you about agency being a perspective and about looking at nature for inspiration about how one little thing can change everything. I mean, but we are, we are nature. I will leave you on that. Like you put nature in your body every second of every day. You are interconnected with all of the other living things on this planet. And this is not a hippy dippy shit. This is literally a biophysical reality. You know, we are fueled by the atoms that cycle through this, you know, entropic system. And we destroy nature for our own detriment, but we can also learn from nature to our own benefit. But the more we can take nature as our, as our, not just our inspiration, but our guide um, to, through this journey of learning how to meet human needs in beautiful and sustainable and yes, regenerative ways, the more than we can get to a future that really does work better for all of us. I can't add to that. And it, this has been such a fun interview because I feel like it was just about letting a racehorse have its, have its space to go. <laughs> I mean, like, I, I just enjoyed it. It was like Layla television. And I was just like, yeah, go Layla, go. Because I agreed with absolutely everything you said and, and learned some things and felt like you helped to channel and even correct some of my thinking because I play in these same spaces, but I come at it from like a communications and influencing perspective. And you're coming at it from a design perspective, but we're all headed the same direction. We have access to different teams and different people, but also some of the same people. So I am feeling wonderful at the end of this, knowing that there are people like you doing what you're doing right now, because it is having a genuine impact. And on days when anybody listening to this and myself wake up thinking, oh, we've got a lot of work to do. It's you know what? It's not worth doing if it's not hard work. It's true, because the status quo is just fucking boring. Otherwise, it's really easy and boring. Yeah, yeah and boring. Mm, anathema. Who wants to be boring? Who wants to be bored? No, and also the most, you know, flow state, the, the concept of flow state, flow comes when you are, it's a combination of skills, passion, and challenge. Yeah. If you're not challenged, then you're not growing, right? Yeah. So it's so important that there should always be a little bit of discomfort, as you say. That discomfort is the motivator, it's the engine, it's the fuel. And it shouldn't be that you're physically or emotionally traumatized by the things you're doing because trauma is already a massive problem in our society. But it should be that you are finding that playful joy with the uncomfortable edges yeah. so that we can always be pushing ourselves to do something greater than we did in the past or contributing to the, the chain of change that is happening. You know, it's always possible to, to be happily uncomfortable. Yeah. And I know when I'm in flow because I feel it feels weightless and it feels joyful and I feel like I'm sprinting. I have a funny thing when I do talks sometimes, if I'm really vibing with the audience, I just lose myself and I get off stage and I'm like, what did I say? I have no recollection. But then if I happen to watch the talk, I'm like, huh, that was a really good, and I kind of zero memory of it. Like, it's like this beautiful dance right? It's such a, it's such an amazing regenerative experience because the audience is there with you and you have this kind of like, you build this kind of like possibility. It's great. Beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Same. When people ask when I'm in flow, it's on stage. And it's hard to say that to people who are afraid of being on stage because it, it makes you sound like a bit of a dick. Like, you know, 
I, but it's just such a lovely feeling of, of flowing and not remembering what you say. Right. But then there are people who like running and they get a flow state in running. And I'm the person who is scared of running. <laughs> so it's, you know. I just want to thank you for being here, Layla. It has been such a lovely flowy sprint with you. Time has flown. You're definitely going to have to come back. And I think we're going to have to talk about decolonializing design with an indigenous designer. Perhaps, yes, please do. Or someone with that insight and wisdom. But I, I definitely want to have you back. So thank you so much for your time and your busy schedule. And I know people will definitely enjoy this episode. Thank you. Thanks for getting uncomfortable with me. If you enjoyed this episode, follow and like The Discomfort Practice wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave me a five-star and written review and share this with other people. Help me to reach new audiences with this idea that consciously practicing discomfort helps us to individually and collectively discover our superpowers and create a society and a planet where everyone can thrive. Thank you so much to my guests all season. Go back and listen to a few more episodes to hear more of them. They are wonderful humans doing amazing things in the world. Thanks to my team who helped me produce this podcast. And for those who inspire me through their writing, their conversation, and their support. So that's all from me for now. Follow me on Instagram at the Betsy Reed if you want to get to know me a bit better, some of my thoughts. And in the meantime, stay uncomfortable.